Hi, I'm Kay Cockrell with Golf Channel and NBC Sports. Today is all about the Masters Tournament as I join Stephen Paul inside the truck. This is Inside the Truck, presented by Summer Skates. Show your game off the ice. Inside the Truck, pulling back the curtain on sports television production. Here is Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Steve Lansky, and I've been in live sports television production for over 41 years. I've produced Hockey Night in Canada, the Grey Cup on CBC, and worked at the Olympic Winter Games. I am the luckiest guy on the earth. And I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years. I've directed the Stanley Cup playoffs, NHL Winter Classic, Hockey Night in Canada, and the World Juniors. Currently, I'm the director for the Carolina Hurricanes on Fox Sports Carolinas. Thank you, Kay Cockrell, for that cold open. We really appreciate it. Kay will be working her very first Masters tournament this year on Westwood One Radio. And later in this show, an outstanding interview with Kay. Today, we kick things off with mailbag. Steve, uh, what do you got for listener feedback? Well, last week we talked about things that had happened between the red lights. Uh, That was a term you used. I like that. So not necessarily in the truck, but outside, around, nearby. We could see the truck in the distance, but we weren't in the truck. I got a tweet from Kevin Tercier, and we had talked about a feature that I did with Glenn Sather while he was pheasant hunting, one of those away from the rink features. And as an aside, Glenn almost blew my head off while we were shooting the feature. But other than that. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way. Right. So somebody found the feature online, which was great. I I hadn't seen it in probably, I don't know, 30 years. It was fun to watch. And Kevin Tercier watched it and he said, man, I miss those features. So good. Would it be that hard for Hockey Night in Canada to throw in a few of these instead of panel, panel, panel? And hey, after that, how about some more panel? Uh, The short answer, Kevin, is apparently yes, it would be that hard for them to do that. And I'm not going to touch the rest. And I also got a tweet from Gord Whitehead, who voiced those features. He used to work at CJCA in Edmonton. He was our voice on features for most of the time, I think, when I worked at Hockey Night in Canada. And he wrote, boy, what a trip into the time tunnel. Those Oiler teams were story rich. A few nights of high energy in the truck, trying to get them finished and on the air. Lots of fun, Steve. And like many, I miss those stories. Yeah, sometimes we'd write the feature and then mm-hmm. Gord would have to come down to the truck and we'd stick him in the studio and he'd have to voice into holes. So, wow. right, because we didn't have computer editing. So it'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, Gord, this next read is 12 seconds. And mm-hmm. then, of course, I'd leave the hole in the feature at about 14. So he could be a second late coming in a second because there was music covering it. Anyway, it was it, it was fun. It brought back some really neat memories when I got those two tweets. Our after the pod, this episode deals with COVID testing in our industry, Steve. Just after episode 12 was released, I was scheduled to work a football game, college football game at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As per protocol, uh, on the Friday, the day before the game, I had to drive up to Winston-Salem, which is about two hours from Raleigh, and test for COVID on the campus at Wake Forest, and then await the result of my test to see if I could actually work the game. So, you know, nowadays, it's not just you're assigned to the game, put that in your calendar, you'll be doing a football game on Saturday. It's you're assigned to the game, and hopefully... If all goes well and you get a negative test, you'll be working the game. I understand the seriousness of COVID absolutely and all the precautions are completely necessary, but it is kind of an interesting curveball in our business now where it's not necessarily for sure that you're going to do the game. I'm doing another game at East Carolina. Today, my COVID test will arrive in the mail and I'll have to do that, drive it to UPS in the morning, drop it off, and then wait overnight to see if I've if I, if I qualify. So it, it is still a major thing. It doesn't, we haven't talked about it a lot on the podcast, but I, I just felt that it was important for our listeners to know that uh, it is still a major player uh, in, in our industry right now. And how do you do this test today? Like how do they know you're not going to go out and swab the neighbor's cat and then put that in, in UPS? How do they know that? That's a great point. It depends. Different testing companies have their own procedure. Like the one that I did, for my previous football game, they sent me a kit in the mail. And if I was going to do it, I had to swab in front of a nurse representing that company on a Zoom call. However, this one is just spit in a cup and package it up and send it back. 
I think it's only Olympic athletes that do that. They have to send in a urine sample and it turns out they're a, you know, pregnant 38 year old from Latvia or something like that. And they're yeah. and really, they're a 22 year old guy from, yeah. You know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Says here, you're a four-year-old platypus. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry. What, what event will you be competing in? Platypus. <laughs> so today we're all about the master's tournament which is played every single year at Augusta National in Georgia. 1934 was the first tournament. It was inaugurated by Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts. 1949, they presented the first green jacket. In 1952, Ben Hogan inaugurated the Champions Dinner. Jack Nicholas has won the tournament six times. Horton Smith won the first tournament in 1934, but really the Masters tournament got put on the map in 1935 when Gene Sarazen, the squire, I never met the squire would love to have. He had a double eagle on 15, got him into a 36-hole playoff, and he won the tournament. And that double eagle was known as the shot heard round the world. There, there's your master's primer, my friend. Wow, love it, Steve, love it. How many major championship tournaments have you ever been to? Been to a couple. Have you? A couple of, yeah, a couple of U.S. Opens. I haven't been to the Masters. I would love to get to Augusta. I live two hours from Pinehurst, so that'll definitely be on my radar. Uh, you know, as that'd be a good uh, so, one. So only a couple so far, but maybe many more to come, Steve. There's nothing like going to a major, is there? I've been to, God, I don't know how many times I've been to the Canadian Open, 15 times probably. And mm-hmm. there is, and you've been to the Greater Vancouver Open. There's nothing like a major championship. No, you just, there's something in the air. It's like pomp and circumstance. And it's almost sort of like you're in a royal event when it's a, when it's a major. It is completely different. Oh, I like that. It is. It's like a royal event. I've been at one U.S. Open at Oakland Hills when Steve Jones won, I think 1996. I've been to a PGA Championship, I think 2003. Sean McKeel won the PGA. And I've been to two Ryder Cups. And man, there is nothing like the Ryder Cup. And you and I both know that because we went to our first Ryder Cup together. That's right. And uh, we'll regale the listeners with some classic stories from that a little later on in the pod. We will, but let's get to Kay. So Kay Cockrell has been an analyst on the Golf Channel for over 20 years, but she started as a college golfer at UCLA. She's in the UCLA Athletes Hall of Fame, the only female golfer, right? That's correct. The only female golfer at Go Bruins. She won the U.S. Women's Amateur twice. She won it once in California. She won it once in Rhode Island in 86 in California, 87 in Rhode Island. She actually is about to talk about the Rhode Island win. Oh my God, it's the funniest story I've ever heard in my life. And then she played about 10 years on the LPGA and the Futures Tour and had one pro win. And now she works as an analyst with the Golf Channel and will work on the Masters on Westwood One Radio. So it's September 20th, about 7 a.m. And I'm watching the final round of the U.S. Open because that's what people do at 7 a.m. on a Sunday. And Kay Cockrell is walking the golf course at Wingfoot, and Nick Faldo's in the broadcast booth. And there's no leaders going off. In fact, one of the club pros is going off as a marker in the first group. And I'm listening to Kay go back and forth with Faldo. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really engaging, relaxing, informative, enjoyable television. And I felt sad for people who were missing it. And I thought, you know what? We've got to talk to Kay. And just as we went to do this interview, you found out you were going to work radio at the Masters. So why don't we start there? Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a really interesting sort of new adventure for me. I, I got a, a phone call by Mike Eby, he, and he's a longtime producer for Westwood One and Tandem with the with Masters Radio, and he asked if the, I'd like to be a part of their production this year. I mean, everything, of course, is a little different this year, extremely different, moving the Masters from April to November. And I'm sure they had a few people that were in their normal production that may not have been able to do it or chose not to do it. And I thought, hey, it'd be a great opportunity to, first of all, call the Masters in any manner. And secondly, do something that I've never done before, which is radio, which is kind of the complete opposite of what I normally do. But I think it's important for all of us to kind of keep pushing our boundaries and try new things that you might be a little intimidated with or possibly fearful of and just kind of push through and and give it a go. 
So, Kay, how, how did you go from being a player to an analyst? Did you have like a light bulb moment? Well, the light bulb moment was probably twofold. Uh, number one, I was struggling on the LPGA tour, kind of wallowing in mediocrity. And I'd gone back to the qualifying school for the second time, which is mortifying and probably one of the worst experiences that anyone has to go through the first time, much less having to go back again, which means you have somewhat failed and you need to regain your your ability to play on the LPGA or PGA tour. And I was practicing in Springfield, Illinois for an old tournament we used to play called the Rail. And our commissioner at the time, Charlie Meacham, came up to me and he, I was practicing my three footers, which we should all practice our three footers more than anything, right? And he said, would you, have you ever considered doing television? And I thought, no, uh, kind of never even thought about it for a moment. And he said, well, there's this, this thing, the station starting called the Golf Channel, and they want commentators who are players. I think you'd be great. If you're interested, I'm going to recommend you and you take it from there. And I, I, you know, I have a UCLA degree in economics, so I'm not a complete ding dong. So I knew that this was something really big that was being offered to me. And this was sort of one of those points in the road where you, you have a choice to go a different direction. And I knew that I at least had to test it out and see what it was all about. And I, I thought I'd either like it and be good at it and they, they'd like me or it would sort of reignite and refuel my fire to rededicate to um, competitive golf and see if I could get myself to the next level. Well, the minute I started doing TV, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but they gave me a microphone. We kind of had a little bit of pre, you know, pre-help from some, some people. And, and I had some great, great leaders. And we can talk about that a little bit more um, if you want. But basically, I loved, loved it from the start. I loved the energy. I loved the team aspect. The fact that you had this group of people that were coming together to put on a show both in front of and mostly behind the camera. And I love the idea that if you made a mistake, there were others there to pick you up. And at the end of the day, you either had a really great clean show or you had a show that had some funny, quirky moments or some mistakes that you, you laughed about and learned from and moved on. And it just, it just was a blessing for me and something I'm so thankful for this day to this day for being able to keep me in the golf world, but take me in a direction that was different and in my mind, a lot less taxing and stressful on the mind and body. It was challenging in a different way, but I, I was really getting very upset and very frustrated with golf. And this was something new and exciting. And I still find it new and exciting to this day. So talk a bit about that then. What's If you're an on-course reporter for somebody who's never really seen it, or obviously none of us have ever done it, what's the role? What's the job? What's your main focus as you're doing that? Well, I think um, two two gentlemen who were integral in in getting me into the Golf Channel back in the day was Mike Whalen, who was he was hired on as the guy that was going to create the Golf Channel in in terms of who the talent was, what the look was, and then Keith Hirschland, who was my first producer, and he was our first live golf producer, and stayed with the Golf Channel for a good fourteen fifteen years, and they both really instilled in me. And I think my fellow commentators do not try to be something other than who we are and just talk to the fans at home. Like you're sitting on the couch, talking to people about what you know. And yeah, there were a few technical things you have to learn, like, you know, listening to all the voices in your ear and having your producer say, you know, finish your thought. And with golf, you know, you're moving pretty quickly from one shot to the next. And so just to finish up your thought because the producer wants to get to that next shot. And if you keep lingering and talking, that's really frustrating for them. Learning how to work with others, other commentators and kind of getting to know the rhythm and the cadence of the show. Again, with the producer and director, what do they like and what do they dislike? And you kind of learned everyone is, is different. There's so many fascinating things to, and, and that's, and you guys are in the truck. I'm outside either in the studio uh, talking as the main analyst or mostly what would I've been for the most of my career out on the ground as an on-course commentator. So I don't even hear or know the half of what goes on behind the scenes because the producer is trying to create 
a calm world for us talent to to talk of our talk and 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 do the show and not hear the chaos that's happening or some something's gone haywire and they're just trying to keep it going right so a lot of interesting things can happen and hopefully the people at home don't really see the blips or the mistakes behind the scenes they might most people, unless they're in the know, are, are going to miss a lot of those issues. Uh, so steep learning curve out of the gate, uh, safe to say. <laughs> Before we move away from your playing career, how long did you miss playing competitively? You know, you, it's something I did from age 12 to roughly 32, 33 years old, um, and really intensely probably from 15 to that, that back end age. So it's, you can't just turn it off. I know for a couple of years, I rarely played. Well, actually, let me let me backtrack. I did wean myself off the tour. So 95 was the first year I did TV, but I continued to play until 97. So I did a mix of both. I commentated and I still had a, my some schedule of tournaments. And each year I knocked down that schedule. I weaned myself off, off of the tour. But when I finally did stop competing, I didn't play much for a couple of years because I thought, what's the point of going out to play golf if you're not working at it, you're not preparing for a tournament? Why would I just go out and play for the fun of it? How, I mean, what's the point? And so a couple of years later, I also, a lot of the guys and gals that I work with play golf. So we'd bring our sticks out onto the road and, and play nearby golf courses, especially if we're off the air on Thursday, Friday, like at four o'clock. And then in the, in the summer, the sun's up till nine. So we'd go get in nine, 12, 18 holes and then go have dinner and do it all again the next day. So I've learned how to accept playing golf at a substandard level in, in my mind. And, and I'm much easier on myself and I'm, I'm, I have much lower expectations. So it's, it's taken 20 years to figure out how to enjoy this game, but I do enjoy it um, when I play for fun. I still want to be playing for something, whether it's a glass of wine or five bucks or something. <laughs> when you when you prep for a tournament, how do you do it? Do you do it on paper? Do you do it by watching players? What's your prep routine? Yeah, kind of a, a combination of both, Steve. Uh, it seems like in recent years, there's so much more available at our fingertips via the computer than there were initially. So a lot more stat gathering on this computer that we're looking at. Or we have PAs that give us kind of the essential information. I'm not a huge stat person. That's not my forte. I figure if we've got six voices and two or three of them are heavy into the stats, two or three of us should be more storytellers. And I'm a little bit more about what's the player going through mentally, physically, what have they changed in their golf swing? What have they, are there any clubs that they've changed? And I get all that information by just getting out on the driving range or walking the course and talking to the players, talking to the caddies. I also always walk the entire 18 holes at least once, if not twice, maybe go out before the, the show and check out the whole location, make notes, talk to players that have played early. How did the course play? Is the front nine much different than the back nine? Which hole locations made it extremely tough or easy? All those kind of things. And I jot it down and have of course, we only use about 10 or 20% of all that information that we've gathered, but you have it and you're ready if you need it. Okay. What's the most memorable golf tournament that you've worked so far in your broadcasting career? Oh, gosh. I probably, women's U.S. Opens are always up there. I love the U.S. Open. I love USGA events. I love women's amateur. I love match play. Match play just gets me so excited. And so usually the Solheim Cup is for me the most exciting tournament. I haven't worked a Ryder Cup. I've been to a couple working some corporate outings. Maybe one day I'll be able to work one of those, but I love the team aspect, the match play, the emotional, just how emotional match play is. And those are probably my favorites. And particularly the last couple of years when very good friend Julie Inkster was captain of the last three Solheim Cups. So it was fun to see her in action and her just wonderful attitude as one of the all-time best competitors, man or woman, to play the game and see how she handled it and um, one either being ahead and one coming back. So those for me are probably the most exciting. And, and I think also because the women don't get as much attention as the men in terms of fan attendance. 
And Solheim Cups are always really well attended. And so you, the women get that big stage feeling and you just, the energy coming through the, the whole event, I think manifests in us that are telling the stories and we elevate as well. If you're describing to somebody what the job of a golf analyst is, what would you say is the the number one key, the main component to being a good golf analyst on television or radio, as the case may be? That's that's really a good question. Um, I think it's just it's finding your own voice and trying to convey thoughts in as simple and meaningful way as possible. We all fall into the habit sometimes of stating the obvious or stating what people can see on television. What can you tell me that we can't see that complements what we're looking at visually? Whereas like with the radio that I'm going to do, which is the flip side where you have to explain everything and that will be really, really challenging for me. So I also explain, you know, if you have six or seven voices doing a telecast, you know that the person at home is going to love a couple of them, hate a couple of them, and maybe be ambivalent about two of them. And to me, that's a pretty good scenario. So you want to have a com- combination of voices because Steve, you and you and Paul know you're sitting at home and you just, if you like me, anything I say, you're probably going to agree with and think is very clever and nice. And if you hate my sound or my tone of voice or my personality, you're going to hate everything I say. So it's very subjective. There's no way there's anyone that you could say across the board is probably universally liked. So I think, if, again, you can spread it out and cover all the bases, then you're doing a good job. Okay, what's the best thing about being a golf analyst? And then conversely, what's the worst thing about being out there on the course reporting? Um, the best thing is probably the fact that like golf, it's, ever-changing. You've got a different office every day, every week. It's a beautiful office being on a golf course. In bad weather, it can be pretty crappy to be out there in Solheim weather, in Scottish open, British open weather when the rain's coming in sideways and it's freezing and you know, you're just, all I can say is I'm thankful I'm, I'm holding a microphone instead of trying to get that ball in the hole in as few strokes as possible. But weather, or even if it's 105 plus humidity in the south in the summer, that can be pretty miserable too. So weather conditions can make it kind of, kind of dodgy. I think the hardest thing too is just being on the road. I've been traveling pretty extensively since I was 17 years old. And if there's one thing that COVID has enabled me and probably a lot of my fellow competitors and TV people is we've got a chance to actually be home for a stretch of time. I'd say this year during the COVID pandemic break was the first time that I'd been home for that many months in a row since I was probably 17. And so Thankfully, I have a great house here in San Francisco. I've got a loving husband. I've got a great dog. So for us, it was it was really nice. And I think then when I got returned back to TV, which was in, in Toledo, Ohio, at Inverness covering the LPGA's return, I think we all had a better appreciation for what we do and, and how precious every moment is at what we're able to do. So yeah, being being on the road is hard, but we have a good team. I love the people I work with for the most part. So I like the social aspect of it, which has kind of been cut back also due to COVID. We don't go out to group dinners. We maybe go to people and sit in an outdoor restaurant. And that might, might be the most of it. But most of the time, we're just spending at the golf course in the hotel. You talked about starting to play when you were 12 from then until I guess you stopped playing competitively or when you were growing up, who were your, who were your golf heroes? Who did you look to and say, wow, I wish I could play like that person. Well, probably first initially was Beth Daniel. I loved her physique. We were both the same, pretty tall and slender. And she was winning, you know, 25, 30 times um, plus major championships. She w- she had also won a U.S. amateur, but probably closer in my area was Julie Inkster because she grew up 20 minutes away. We didn't play junior golf or college golf together. We just missed that. Um, our age difference is just enough we missed. 
but she was winning three U.S. amateurs in a row right when I was really getting into golf. And that was like, wow, she's amazing. And I want to do that too. So uh, she definitely was, was someone I looked up to as well as Joanne Carner. I love Joanne Carner. She was somebody who just epitomized having fun on the golf course and playing hard and having fun off the course. And I played with her when I was an amateur after I'd won the U.S. amateur in a U.S. Women's Open. And it was just incredible to have that experience of playing with, you know, the great Gundy. And she's, she's as amazing in person as she is on TV or what you've read about her. I have to say I have a couple of women um, commentators who were huge in my life. Donna Capone, who was our first analyst at Golf Channel. She taught me so much about how to be a good TV announcer, just little details like you're saying the same word, you're repeating that word all the time, you're starting everything with well, da-da-da-da-da, just start your sentence, don't fill it with a stupid word like well. And Judy Rankin, who I work with today and have worked with probably the last 10, 15 years um, off and on. And they're both incredible women who are trailblazers in what they did and still do. And I'm proud, so proud to have been able to work alongside both of them and have them be role models for me. Okay. Superstitions, or if you don't like that word, extreme routine is always big in professional sports. Do you have any of those that you've carried over from a player to being a course commentator? Not like, like in golf, I had to have the same ball marker. Like I had this Japanese yen that I got when I went over to Japan as an amateur to play. And I remember I lost it. I had a hole in my pocket and I lost it before my quarterfinal match in Rhode Island for the U S amateur. And I was literally freaking out. Like, how am I going to go play this match? I don't have my magic Japanese yen. How am I going to, how am I going to play this match? All right, Kay, you better get over this. Cause you don't have the yen. You, you know, you better find a substitute. It's just a marker get over it. Yeah, but it's my lucky marker. Every match I've won, I've had that in my pocket. So here's the conversation. This is this is like 20 minutes before I'm going off, you know. So those are the stupid things you could do as a, as a player because you're so you have this routine, you know, maybe four four white tees and a certain ball marker. And if you wear an outfit and you shoot a bad round in it, that outfit will never see the light of day. TV, I'm more, I'm always kind of a routine person. So it's just my routine. Like I have my get to the course four hours before we go on the air, go check out the course, read through the notes, be at the driving range an hour before the the groups that we're watching is teen off. So if something gets off with my routine or I'm late or I'm, I'm, I just start getting really stressed, like I'm anxious because how am I going to get all the preparation in? Cause you just have your routine. I have notes that either a, a notepad or I have these little, I cut them about the size of a yardage book and I put little notes about each player just as a backup in case I forget or the things I want to make sure I make a point of about their game. And I have those inside my yardage book. So if I don't get those done, I'd be freaking out. So you know, just it's, it's more like things that you know are your support and they're kind of your day in and day out things that get you out the door and in, into your job. And it's just learn it over time, right? What works and doesn't work. And Paul, I have to go off the book to follow up on the yen. Did you not win that U.S. amateur? How did we solve, how did we <laughs> I solve the yen problem? I need to know how we solved it. <laughs> we, we, we just grabbed a quarter, used that, and then I actually had a sta- I had an extra yen back at my housing that I reincorp- I incorporated the new yen into rotation. I mean, who doesn't carry an extra yen? I mean, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's the backup yen. Of course you did. <laughs> the crazy oh. stuff we do. Okay, quick hitter here. Uh, Kay, who's in your dream foursome? Well, I'd have to put Tiger in that group because, you know, who doesn't want to play with Tiger, right? Probably like Glenna Collette Vare, who... You know, the Ver, our Ver trophy is named after and won like a dozen U.S. women's amateur championships. A little exaggerated. 
So you got to have someone that's way back in time like that. And then like a Bobby Jones, you know, just so you could pick their brain and see what it was like back in the early, early eras. And I hate comparing eras because everything those players did for us in the turn of the century in the 20s and 30s and 40s is what enabled us to be doing what we're doing now, technology-wise, preparation with your body-wise, psychology. All of those things that are happening now are based on what the people in the past did. So I'd love, I'd love to play with a couple of the old, old timers to see uh, really what was happening and how they got through issues, knowing what they knew then. What is your biggest challenge reporting on the course? Let's see. Well, I'm not, believe it or not, I, I grew up very shy. I was extremely shy. And that was something I had to get over with golf, performing in front of people when they were watching. Um, I learned how to get over that hurdle. I'm actually still very nervous when I have to do an on-camera or if I have to do some sort of stand-up update in the trees, you know, just out there with me and a camera. Ugh, I'm terrible at it. I get so nervous. I overthink. I try to be so perfect and it ends up being terrible. And We have to do like 20 takes. I'm much better life. I'm just much better life. And, and I think that, that that's something that you, that's a good lesson for people is you don't have to be so perfect. You don't have to be the perfect announcer commentator that everything is perfect with your hair and your makeup and how you, how you bring things forward, be yourself, be natural. And if you make a little mistake, just work through it. And that's, that's why I like the live golf. It's because it's akin to live golf that you're playing. You make a bogey, make a couple bogeys. If you dwell on the mistake, it, you're going to keep making mistakes. You got to put it behind you. Your producer screams in your ear because you've just done something wrong. Either you keep making mistakes or you suck it up and you put it behind you and you stay in the present and you keep moving forward. So those are my biggest challenges probably is actually being um, having to speak and feel like I'm speaking in front of people or doing like a stand up. I'm much better. I'm really comfortable just roaming the fairways out, standing under the trees or off in the grass, just speaking to the hundreds of thousands or millions of people listening, but I don't see them. It's just me, the microphone, what I'm watching and interacting with the, the people that I work with. And playing off that, Kay, what is your funniest moment on air? Well, I probably had a couple. One of them was with Beth Daniel when she was first, she had was injured and she was doing some TV with us, which was great. For two or three years, we had Beth Daniel doing quite a bit of our um, main analyst job. But when she was first doing it, we were doing a stand-up, a stand-up, <laughs> what my favorite thing to do. Uh, previewing what we were going to see on the show that day. And we went through a little practice rehearsal. Everything's great. I'm kind of, you know, giving it up to her and sort of teeing her up with questions. Well, we get into question number two and I, I inhale and a bug goes right to the back of my throat. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I bend over and Beth's looking at me like, this is not what we rehearsed. And I'm choking, looking up at her coughing trying to get this bug out and she, and I'm just pointing at her and so she takes it and just starts babbling away and I get the bug out and come back together and carry on so that was that was kind of embarrassing that was that was a good one um, another one was at the Safeway it used to be called the fries and our producer at the time uh, Brant Packer he said okay I'm gonna you interview um, Bryce Mulder he just won and then you'll toss it over to Billy Ray Brown. He's got Briny Baird, who's runner up. So I'm, I'm talking to Bryce Mulder and I don't hear wrap it up, toss it. And I think, oh gosh, something's gone wrong. We've lost the feed or, you know, connection to Orlando. And my training was, I just kept going. So I go back, I start asking Bryce about how he got into golf, his early years, his transition from college into pro and I mean, we're talking for five, six minutes. Now I see a cameraman come running around behind going like this. Cut, cut. And I look over and Billy Ray is looking at me like, what are you doing? I lost, my button had gone down and I didn't hear the producer screaming at me for the last five minutes. Toss it over. What are you doing? Why are you not listening? Why is it, he's lost total control. 
And if anyone knows me, I don't love the limelight. Like I'm not doing that to hog the screen, but yeah, we still laugh about it to this day. Mortified. Like what did I just do? So we learned a lot about Bryce Mulder that day. That was the good side of it. We went deep into his past and we learned a lot of great things. (laughs) Kay Cockrell, thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the masters. I will. Thanks very much, you guys. I hope we stay in touch. All right. Thank you. That was awesome. Loved our time with Kay today. I look forward to her coverage on Westwood One Radio, as well as mixing that in with the TV coverage uh, at Augusta uh, this week. Let's pray for no freezing rain, because that's winter down here, and uh, we're getting very dangerously close to that. So just pray for good weather. I would say this about talking to Kay there. If you have any aspirations, anyone listening, of being an analyst in any sport, you will not hear an analyst explain the job and explain how she gets it more than any other analyst I've ever heard in my life. She completely understood her role. It was an absolute joy listening to her break down what it takes to be a golf analyst in this case, but really it's a paintbrush over being an analyst in any sport. I thought her explanation of that and her understanding of that was absolutely brilliant. I do have to flag one thing though, Paul, twice, not once, twice. Kay talked about screaming producers or producers Mm. screaming. I don't know who these quote screaming producers are that she's worked with. I feel for her. Oh my God, I can see on the Zoom call and your eyebrows are like, I don't, I'm not sure you're buying what I'm saying. I'm not sure you're buying into what I'm saying. I'm just, I I agree with Kay. Let's just leave it at that. From my position in the truck, I just agree with Kay. And I did, yeah, I did say she was a great analyst. So I guess if she says they're screaming producers, there must be screaming producers somewhere. I just don't know where they'd be. Hey, Steve, one thing our listeners are not going to have to worry about is seeing my eyebrows do the caterpillar thing as uh, as they were before when you're talking, because we started our own YouTube channel. We have? Yes. Did Inside- I know about this? Is this something yeah. I knew about? No, I just did went ahead and did this without you. Got it. Uh, it's, it's our YouTube channel, Inside <laughs> the Truck, on YouTube. Make sure you'd subscribe today. Do I have to wear like a tuxedo or something or maybe like a top hat? Because this seems implausible, but I'm willing to do it if you insist. Well, I think you're going to have to up your haberdashery for sure, (laughs) which I don't think will be difficult. So, yes, I would say yes. Tuxedo would be great, but I take even less than that. Hang on. Say haberdashery so we can get a gong in. Haberdashery. Gentlemen, it's pronounced haberdashery, and it refers to men's clothing and accessories, which are sold by a haberdasher. The late, great Payne Stewart probably had a haberdasher. I can't believe we just put a gong in there. It's not going to replace the podcast, and it's not different stuff than the podcast. It's just expanded stuff. We'll take a deeper dive in your favorite moments from the podcast on YouTube, but you'll get to see our two beautiful faces. So when I think about the Masters Tournament, I think about CBS. And when I think about CBS, I think of golf legends. And you have walked with those legends, my friend. Yes, uh, Steve, I have. It was back in the mid-80s. I was uh, recruited to be a production assistant for CBS's golf coverage at the Canadian Open at Glen Abbey uh, in Oakville, Ontario. And my role that uh, for that week was I was basically a gopher. I I would go for this. I would go for that. On the food chain, let's just say I was slightly higher than a snake's belly. So uh, I just want to, you know, premise all this these stories that I'm about to tell with the fact that I was an absolute nobody on this crew. But it did give me a chance to be around golf broadcasting royalty. Let's call it what it is, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Pat Summerall, Ken Venturi, and the man responsible for golf the way that we see it on TV these days, Frank Cherkinian were all people that I was exposed to during my week at uh, with CBS at Glen Abbey. And uh, it opened my eyes completely to a different level of sports television production. Are we allowed to reveal Frank Trichinian's nickname? Because everybody's got a nickname and he's got a nickname, all right. Uh, he does. And uh, let's just say it's earned. Uh, Frank was a, <laughs> like, he was known as the godfather. Uh, he was an extremely old school guy, very demanding. Some would say uncompromising. And uh, when you roll all those things together, Steve, you get the nickname 
the Ayatollah. Yes, and that's do. that's what uh, Frank was known at. I'm sure nobody called that to his face. I was lucky enough to hang out for a few minutes in the uh, to stand behind him and watch the show uh, at some point during that week. It was uh, it was five minutes of television history that I'll never forget. Just to be able to watch the master at work. And for those of you who don't know, basically Cherkinian was responsible for uh, the golf the way we see it today on television. The innovative camera locations. Uh, aerial coverage, putting a camera in a blimp, and the the rapid shot philosophy. Instead of watching groups parade through the camera holes 15, 16, 17, and 18, you would hopscotch all over the place and just focus on the stars or the leaders. And that was something that Cherkinian uh, brought to golf. But there are two major innovations, Steve, that all viewers should be thanking Frank Cherkinian for. Number one is effects microphones that he would lay out all over the golf course that would incorporate the natural sounds, uh, such as birds chirping, a, a babbling brook, perhaps golfers talking to each other, conversation between player and caddy, rather than just hearing silent golfers hitting golf shots all over the place. And so that was something that really took the broadcast to another level. And finally, it was Jerkinian's idea to score the event for television with everything being in relationship to par, as opposed to cumulative score because golf traditionally is a total score uh, round by round, not necessarily where you are ranked versus par, but this would certainly make it easy, a lot easier for the viewers to figure out who was in contention and who wasn't. It's a lot easier to know that minus 10 is a lot better than 232, you know? So uh, those are all things that uh, Kinian was responsible for. It was an honor and a privilege to watch him work. And of course, it would be easier to cable at Augusta because the course is shut down just for you for weeks before the tournament. And you'd have to cable every one of those effects mics and just leave. And it would take a long time to do it. But if you have the run of Augusta, that would be the place to start it, right? Mm -hmm. And Frank was the executive producer of CBS's golf coverage at the Masters for over 40 years. So that's where they refined that technology. And let's face it, uh, I don't think there's any way anybody could watch golf now without without the effects microphones and the natural sounds of a golf course on Sunday afternoon. And Pat Summerall and Ken Venturi were golf broadcasting royalty. Pat Summerall played in the National Football League. He was a kicker. I think he won an NFL championship with the New York Giants. And Ken Venturi won the U.S. Open by playing 36 holes on Sunday and almost dying in the process. So if you're working with those two guys, Paul, you really have got broadcasting legends right there. And, and guess who got to drive the broadcasting legends to the private helicopter that awaited them after the final putt dropped on Sunday? The gopher. That's me, the gopher. <laughs> <laughs> so my job was I got the keys to a golf cart tossed at me and said, your job is to race to the tower as soon as we put up copyright and get Pat and Ken to the helicopter, which was strategically waiting at the corner of Glen Abbey Golf Course, like in a far reaches that was to take them to Toronto Pearson Airport where they would fly home, right? Right, right. So, so for any of you who have been to a golf tournament, just, just close your eyes and imagine what it's like after after they've presented the trophy at a golf tournament with everybody leaving exiting the golf course at the same time i i wheel up the tower the tv tower on 18 and there they are so they both uh, hop in the cart and away we go and uh pulling out i drove really fast for about 30 seconds and then i had to hit the brakes because i was behind a herd of golf fans and i've got ken venturi screaming at me let's go let's go let's go and I'm like, go where, Ken? Uh, you know, and he, he basically <laughs> wanted me to like drive it up on curbs. He wanted me to drive over the green down the fairway. He didn't care if I clipped, you know, the people on the way out. He was step on it. Let's go. I don't care if you have to run fans over. Let's get to the golf cart or to the to the helicopter. So that was that ride was it was it was stressful. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. I was worried that I was probably going to get sued or, or, you know, never asked back because I'm sure I clipped people on the way to the helicopter. But the best part of that story was, I, I guess they've seen this movie before. So both Summerall and Venturi ripped their, they removed their CBS sports patches from their sports blazers. So not to be identified. So the patches aren't sewn on? How do they no. remove these patches? So basically in the front jack, the pocket that you would have in a blazer, it's like a little plastic clip 
that goes clips into the uh, the pocket of the jacket with the CBS sports emblem on the outside. I mean, I think today now the CBS emblem is stitched on, but these were just removable patches that they could put in their own jackets, right? So Summerall and Venturi both removed them. Summerall puts his in his pocket. Venturi tosses his in the front of the golf cart. Well, in the madness to get to the helicopter, they just take off. They've got their over-the-shoulder bag, their their night bag, their you know their luggage. They're gone. Yeah. And sure enough, as I wheel away, I look over and there's Ken Venturi's CBS Sports patch in the in the golf cart. So of course you swung back around and said, "Mr. Venturi, Mr. Yes, Venturi. excuse me, Mr. You forgot this. You uh, forgot this. Right? As he's boarding the the chopper's about to take off, and you're holding it up. This is like a scene from a movie. That's that had to be what had happened, right? That is exactly what didn't happen. <laughs> Steve, for all my troubles and, and the stress of getting them there, I just I just said, you know what? This is going to be a great souvenir for my week here at, at, uh, at Glen Abbey. So I put it in my my own pocket and uh, and I still have it to this day and I and I treasure it. It's a it's a piece of golf sports broadcasting. Golf broadcasting should really be in the Smithsonian, but instead it's in a box somewhere in my office. Well. The Smithsonian or the box in your office? I think those are, I'm weighing those out on my scales of justice. Those seem equal to me. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, And I've been lucky enough. I think we counted them up in a previous podcast. I've worked on 17 sports. Golf by far was my favorite. And I was so, so lucky. There used to be a tournament called the Johnny Walker World Championship. And it was played at Trial Club in Jamaica in December. And so when I was producing Acura World of Golf on TSN, we went down, me and Lauren Rubenstein, who would do all our interviews, and a camera guy, Jeff Bruce from CKVR and Barry, we went down to Jamaica to shoot this tournament. There was only 30 players there. It was basically what it was, was it was a way for Johnny Walker to spend money is Mm -hmm. all it was. And they invited 30 golfers, but you had to win certain tournaments. So you you could win a major championship and you'd be invited to the Johnny Walker World Championship. But you could also win the Scottish Open, like a Mm -hmm. guy named Carl Mason did the year I was there. And he was so far out of his element with uh, (laughs) Nick Price's and the Freddie Couples running around. And there's this Mm -hmm. guy, Carl Mason, and God love him, but he I don't think he was ready for this experience. So we would shoot every day at trial. And it was really hot. But the beauty of it was there was only 30 golfers. They played in twosomes. That means there was only 15 groups. They went off at nine. They were done by like one o'clock. They'd go to the range. We could do interviews. We basically had carte blanche. We banked so much stuff for Acura in those four or five days that we there. It was scary. And every morning we got up, went to work. We, We actually had a pool about 12 feet from the little villa we were staying in. So we'd swim in the morning, get ready, go to the golf course. We'd come back each day. There'd be a bottle of Johnny Walker red and Johnny Walker black in our little villa, completely wasted on me. Don't drink. Jeff had a wonderful time. I bet life's tough. Wow. Yeah. It was not tough that week, but the thing I remember most Paul is every night there was a banquet the um, Round Hill Club where we stayed was so gorgeous. And it was basically on a cove and there was a beach. There was a pool, but there was also a beach 14 feet from the pool. And every night on the beach, they would set up tables and have this giant, I don't even know what you'd call it, smorgasbord on the beach. And the thing that impressed me most, and again, it's just a way for Johnny Walker to spend their money. Every Mm -hmm. night, there was like a table of lobsters, but not five lobsters. There had to mm-hmm. be 50. Oh boy. They would just come up and dump these lobsters on this table. So you, if you wanted for dinner, you just wanted a lobster. You just went up and took the lobster. It was wow. all cooked. It was split. You, you didn't have to worry about it. It was all opened up. No work then, involved. No work involved, which is the way, the kind of work that I like. Uh-huh. And then you would just go and sit with whichever golfer you wanted or who they were there with, because all the golfers ate here every night, all 30 mm-hmm. of these golfers. So a lot of times, you know, let's say we had four dinners. I think we spent three of the dinners with Nick Faldo, who wasn't wow. there with his wife. It was just him. And yeah. Fanny Sunison, who was his caddy yeah. at that time. Oh, yeah. 
And I think she caddied for all his major championships. And we would just sit and listen to Nick Faldo tell stories over lobster Mm. until it was like, well, time to go to bed. We'll see you on the course tomorrow morning. Sounds good. And of course, you'd set up your interviews the night before. You'd chat with people. Hey, do you mind if we do an interview with you tomorrow? And we banked all these things and all kinds of shots of the players on the golf course over these five days. And if I live to be, I don't know, a billion seems high, but if I live to be a billion, there yeah. will never, ever, ever be a better work trip for me than there was to that Johnny Walker World Championship that year. I can tell you to this day, the number one sporting event that I've ever been to as a fan uh, was the 31st Ryder Cup matches at Oak Hill in Rochester, New York, back in 1995 that we both attended, Steve. I still get chills even just thinking about being in attendance at that event. I was doing Acura World of Golf then, and uh, we didn't take a camera with us, but we were there to work, right, Paul? We were working Mm -hmm. because we we knew we'd have to talk about this on this podcast. That's right. 25 years later, so it it all comes full circle. And now I can Mm -hmm. finally write that weekend off uh, (laughs) in the... (laughs) the work category. Why was that so great for you? Why did you enjoy those three days of golf? Uh, I have never been to uh, a sporting event that was that passionate. I mean, that was sort of, you know, you know how nowadays it's Ryder Cup. It's it's almost like going to a football game, right? It's yeah. it's 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 loud. It's raucous. There's cheering. Well, th- that's 95 was sort of where that sort of all started. And, it you know, being in America, you know, it was American pride. I'd never been to something like that where it was just, uh, you know, such a national event on such an intimate scene like it's like it would almost be like playing the having the Olympics on an 18 hole golf course is, is really what it came down to. And we had due to our press credentials or media credentials, we had access inside the ropes, which is huge. Right. Yeah. And we had an unbelievable four days walking around Oak Hill. It was fascinating to me in terms of what you were talking about with the passion and I think the United States had only lost the Ryder Cup one time on American soil prior to that. And that day, that Sunday, they they blew it. And Europe won that Ryder Cup. And that was a huge moment in European golf. And let's just say we were ringside for it, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give credit where credit's due here. It was getting late in the day on Sunday. And uh, you just said, let's go to 18 and set up shop there. And I was like, well, well, but but why? We're going to miss a whole bunch of good holes. There's great holes. Like, why would we do that? Why would we just go plant ourselves there? And you're like, just trust me. Okay, just trust me. We're going to go to 18. (laughs) So we get to 18. We're inside the ropes. And there's, you know, I mean, yeah, there's people there and stuff. But like the hill inside the ropes is basically empty, right? Yeah, yeah. So you and I, we plop our, you know, we we plop down on the hill and, and we're watching the groups come through. And I can hear roars in other parts of the course. And I'm like, ah, damn, we're missing that one. You know, and you're just like, relax. Trust me, this is the right thing to do. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, so it comes down to like the final hole the gallery is, you know, a hundred deep and the inside the ropes is full of, you know, dignitaries and, and, and families and friends and TV cameras and reporters. And, and boy, are we ever lucky that we established our position when we did. Uh, so credit where credit's due there, Steve. Thank you. But the, the, here, this is leading to the crescendo moment for us that weekend where we were sitting on the Hill as things were starting to wind down and they were getting, the final group was getting closer to 18. The team Europe wives and girlfriends or wags as they're affectionately known begin to fill in around us and they're sitting beside us and behind us and now in front of us and well we find ourselves basically right in the middle of of all the team europe wives and girlfriends and we can hear what they're saying and what they're talking about and i can't believe curtis strange did this and i can't believe yeah. brad faxon did this and i can't believe yeah. my husband did that yeah exactly it was unbelievable. It was just like, it was just like, it was like a dream that, you know, you were actually, it was a real dream. It was, you know, a real life dream. Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, I, I'm, I won't speak for you, Steve, but I quickly became a team Europe fan at that point because I mean, hell we, we were basically on the team really. And that is correct. And I didn't want to get killed. So I thought we had to cheer yeah, for cheering for, for team Europe now, right? Nick Faldo and Bernard Gallagher, who was the yeah. captain. Exactly. Let's just hope we can get out of Oak Hill alive, but now we're, we're officially cheering for team Europe. So Team Europe wins in dramatic fashion on the 18th green. The Team Europe 
wives and girlfriends all pop up and they're all celebrating and everybody there's hugs and kisses and everything going on. Yeah. And they're like, and they were like, let's go ladies. And they were pointing down to the green. We're going down to the green to celebrate with our, with our men. Right. And they said, let's go. And you and I looked at each other and we looked at them and they looked back at us <laughs> and we looked at each other and we said, let's go. So bam, there we go. Steve and Paul. <laughs> On the way down to the 18th green to set. Now, if you look at the if you look at the video from NBC was the broadcaster, you yeah. can see us on the green celebrating with Team Europe. And another thing worth mentioning, on the way to the green, we got to shake hands with Prince Andrew and say, Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Oh, why? Thank you very much. So when we were talking earlier about royalty, it was royalty. So here we are. It's pandemonium on the green at 18. They're bringing out magnums of champagne. They're shaking it up. There's champagne flutes being held, handed out. We're drinking champagne out of flutes, out of a bottle. I've got champagne all over my face. And when it gets in your eyes, it stings like hell. So I reached for the first, I saw a towel on the ground and I'm like, <laughs> I got to get this out of my eyes. Cause I basically I'm blinded right now. So I grabbed this towel off the green on 18 and I wipe my face with it and I throw it around my neck. And it turns out that it's the towel off Nick Faldo's bag Fanny has left the bag, just dropped the bag on 18. I grab his towel. I'm I'm toweling off with Faldo's tag. We're drinking champagne. I look up, there's the Concord doing circles around Oak Hill because the Concord is, is, is basically arrived to take them back to Europe that night right after. I'm excited telling the story because I feel like it just happened yesterday. That, that's how much of an impact it had on me. I totally forgot the Concorde was there. That's right. It was like this surreal 10, 15 minutes. And then we get off the green and I look over and not only have you got the towel around your neck, you've got like one of the champagne flutes. flutes. And I'm like, Which, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, yeah. What's going on there? And you're like, well, yeah, how yeah. am I supposed to drink? I need the yeah. glass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my God. I know you'll find this hard to believe, Steve, but to this day in the same box as Ken Venturi's <laughs> CBS sports badge, is a champagne flute from Team Europe and my Nick Faldo towel, which is still covered in the original mud from Oak Hill that came from that Sunday. I will never, I don't let anybody touch it, let alone clean it. Why would one wash that mud off? One Why would not wash that mud off. No. Why would you? So Nick, if you're listening and you want that towel, we have a mutual friend. We can connect. I'll, I'll get, I'm happy to give the towel back to you, Sir Nick. You're not, you're not giving that towel back. Well, I have to. You're gonna, no, you're not. You're going to take offer. a. You're going to take a white towel. You're going to take a blue sharpie. You're going to write Mizuno on the towel. You're going <laughs> to run out in the front lawn. You're going to smear a little dirt on it, and you're going to throw it in the mail. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> Time now for our Q and A segment presented by Conquest Hockey. Play to win. Use the promo code Inside Fifteen for fifteen percent off your next order. Check them out today. ConquestHockey.co is the website. Unbelievable, high-quality hockey apparel. As a matter of fact, Steve, I believe that uh, you're wearing your Conquest Hockey uh, workout T-shirt right now as we record this, correct? You bet I am. Comfy as hell. Today's question, my friend, comes from Kevin Hustis, Workworth, Ontario. Given how synonymous Sunday afternoon roars, that was in quotes, are to the masters, right up there with azaleas and pimento cheese sandwiches, should CBS use synthetic audio at Augusta this year? Synthetic audio, of course, is what they used in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I'm guessing they won't, Kevin writes. And to my knowledge, no PGA Tour coverage has done so yet. Paul, what do you think, buddy? I'm not a fan, really, of synthetic audio. And I, I think it's probably because I sit in the TV truck for the games, you know, and I'm staring at an empty stadium of 35, 55, 80,000 people. And it's really awkward to hear the roar. Now I, I get it from the viewer standpoint, sitting on the couch at home, when the cameras have framed out all those empty seats and you're just seeing the athletes, that is typically the way that you're used to hearing it. I have really enjoyed the golf coverage uh, without the crowd sounds. I believe that we're hearing a lot more stuff that we never heard before, conversations between player to player, player to caddy heck there was even that one fine moment when we uh we heard one of them pass gas right after a tee shot these are all things that we've never heard before and i i find it very interesting and and with the masters being the granddaddy of all golf tournaments i would like to hear these things that would be masked or covered up by the roar of the crowds at augusta national so i'm all for no synth audio it's funny you know i Wondered how it was going to work in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I thought, I am not going to like this. And I was wrong. 
I don't know that I loved it, but I liked it. And I thought it was really well executed, especially in Edmonton by our buddy Jeff Kozak. I think in golf, I don't think you can have crowd noise because it's clear that there's nobody there. But I do think a little bit of, and I don't know what else to call it other than murmur, murmur, murmur in the background. I don't think that would be a terrible thing. I still think you'd be able to hear the players. I still think you can hear the back and forth that you really want to hear between players and caddies. A lot of times they don't want you necessarily to hear that, but I think that's what you really want to hear on golf. And quite frankly, if they get serious enough and they want you to hear that, they'll all start wearing microphones, but we're not there yet. But I think a little bit of something that's not absolutely nothing on the golf course would help just to kind of break the silence. But crowds and stuff like that, I would say definitely not. Thank you to Kevin Hustis for that excellent question. Kevin, you have a Conquest Hockey Summer Skates prize package on its way to you, consisting of a pair of Conquest Hockey-branded Summer Skate slides and two Conquest Hockey-branded Skate Lace koozies. And for any listeners that want to get in on that deal, make sure you hit us up with your best sports TV-related question via our Twitter account or our Instagram account. And that'll do it for this episode. Do not forget to uh, subscribe on all your favorite platforms. Follow us on Inside the Truck at Twitter, Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram, and now Inside the Truck Podcast on YouTube. Do not forget to subscribe to that. You will not want to miss any of that content uh, that we'll be putting out. And Paul, I got to be honest, if I was a bit distracted today in the pod, it's because I ordered my tuxedo and my top hat while we were recording. So brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, we should have that when we need it. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening in, well, Augusta, Georgia, I guess. Yeah, Augusta. Yeah, and we'll keep bringing you inside the truck. Amen. Corner. <laughs>